Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thanks for listening. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the progress of Army Electronic Warfare. My guest today is Mr. Eric Cologne. He is the Director of Strategic Solutions, Electronic Warfare and Cyber for Corpus Consulting. He brings more than 30 years of service and experience on electronic warfare to DOD and now in in the consulting realm. He is, of course, a longtime friend of the AOC, and I'm pleased to have him with me to talk about this important topic. Eric, it's great to have you on From the Crow's Nest. Thanks for joining me. My pleasure. I've been looking forward to get with you for the last couple months, and I'm happy to be on with you today. So thanks. Good timing, sir. Yeah, we keep seeing each other at some of the AOC conferences, and we talk about this, and it's been a while, but I'm, I'm glad we were able to work it out here over the summer. So thanks for, for being on the show. So I, I thought, you know, just to kick it off, you know, obviously, I want to have a conversation just about where we are from a DOD perspective, but specifically the Army on EMS superiority. We talk a lot on the show about EMS superiority being the backbone to mission success across all warfighting domains. And of course, that includes the Army. But what they're facing may be, require a different perspective than we, we obviously have with the Air Force and Navy. So I want to talk a little bit about how these threats from Russia, China, peer competitors, how, how is the Army thinking about them? And then how does that influence their EW plans and programs? So to get after that specific question, I want to just talk about my lens really fast so we understand where Eric Cologne is coming from. So after 30 years in the military, I I retired uh, this past October working as an EW professional for the last 12 years. So I started at the brigade level and made my way all the way up to uh, combatant command and retired at Army Cyber. So each layer looks at these things differently. So I just wanted to articulate that first, right? Depends on where you're at. And the Army, more specifically, we didn't start... We restarted the EW branch in about 2010 due to the counter IED fight, and we really had no equipment. Um, So that's the key takeaway is where we're at with equipment, where we at with fighting or planning for Russia, and the Ukraine-Russia thing has been eye-opening for EW because, as most of us in this business know, EW has been forgotten for many, many years, right, since the Cold War, and it kind of went downhill. Uh, And then it almost disappeared in the late 80s during the Cold War because we just weren't doing it anymore. So to answer the perspective of where we're at now in the EMSO fight, we still are lacking capability. And as you pointed out, Congress just signed the NDAA, and luckily, you know, there's, there's more funding going to different programs. And so I wanted to just go back a little bit to where we started and then answer like to where we're at now. So counter IDs is kind of where EW got back in the business in the army. We had to borrow because of the uh, issues in Iraq and Afghanistan with a lot of the uh, IDs that were killing and, and injuring a lot of U.S. service members. We didn't have any answer to that initially. And so fast forward to where we're at now, we actually have soldiers that are EW soldiers, but they came from the counter ID fight because we had a need for operators and maintainers of the equipment that we were getting 
set to us downrange rapidly. So we went from nothing to defend ourselves against IEDs to specifically made counter IED equipment, specifically red, chameleons, browns. We just threw counter ID systems downrange and then we're magically figuring out how the stuff deconflicts. So we learned a lot from 2010 until today. The EW soldiers were developed in 2010. That's when it became an MOS. And specifically, we didn't have anybody to maintain these systems. So we borrowed the Air Force and the Navy guys to kind of tell us how to sort of bring these systems to use. They told us how to deconflict these systems, which is something the Army has never really done well. Uh, and then really from EW electronic warfare support perspective, and I should call it now electromagnetic support perspective with the new lexicon, we didn't have engineer type folks that understood how this stuff works. So we really relied on the Air Force and Navy guys who had the expertise from ships and aircraft to kind of tell us how do we deconflict these new systems. So that's kind of where we started from. Uh, and then interestingly enough, Ken, we actually taught people how to be planners before we made them operators, right? So we had the Air Force and Navy officers helping us out. Their EW professionals helped us out. And we just created a course, uh, a counter-ID Duke course, to teach soldiers how to maintain these pieces of equipment. But we really didn't think it through initially to say, hey, how do the Air Force and Navy guys, how do those professionals integrate electronic warfare? Because as you know, there's a lot of congestion in the spectrum anyway, even if we don't try to do it purposefully. So we created a, a fairly decent course in electronic warfare in 2010. We started bringing in soldiers from other MOSs. It wasn't a, a an accession MOS, so it technically wasn't an MOS, even though it was. But uh, we brought soldiers from all other MOSs to become electronic warfare NCOs, warrant officers, and then it was a functional area for officers. So it wasn't really a full MOS. And if there's a lot of argument and discussion of is cyber the newest branch? Is EW the newest branch? Or was special forces the newest branch? But 12 years, we actually developed a really amazing MOS. We actually recreated the MOS for electronic warfare soldiers and brought them from accessions from brand new private E1 all the way up to 06 uh, in 12 years. I think the first actual EW course was taught about two years ago. So it was revamped. And it became a super technical course. And now we're part of the cyber branch because they kind of brought us over a few years ago. It's really kind of interesting to hear hear this because it reiterates the fact that you mentioned beginning like started in 2010, that like you were starting from scratch. And that's extraordinarily difficult to do, particularly in any military service. But you know, when you think about the various levels of the army, leadership on down, you have to get everybody to buy in for these changes to catch hold and to and to continue to sustain and grow and adapt into the future. So obviously they were facing a threat, IEDs, in the 2000s, and you relied a lot on the Air Force and the Navy and the expertise that's out there. But how, from an Army leadership perspective, how did they go about getting their heads around all this to, to make sure organizationally across the entire service the changes needed to be made were made properly? So that's a great question. I have to give it all back to many folks on this show and in the AOC know Colonel Lori Buckout. She actually started this fight, a former signal officer. Um, she had to get attention of senior leaders to say, hey, here's the problem. So General Shirelli charged her when she was in the Pentagon to figure this out, right? And that's usually the problem. They take 06 and say, hey, figure this out without very much guidance. And she did amazing. So it, for one officer in the Army alone and by herself to create an MOS that's like flourished to where it is now is amazing, but it just took stick 
there was a problem. They assigned the right officer at the time to actually get after the problem. And by herself with her staff, I want to give credit to her staff that was kind of like fledgling and they just brought them as they were. She got a direction of, hey, go figure this out. She did. And 12 years later, we are an MOS, but it took her utilizing, you know, anytime we lose soldiers or injure soldiers, that's a big deal. If you look at Afghanistan, right, when we're closing Afghanistan down and we lost those Marines and soldiers right before we pulled out, it takes an event like that to make something significant. We call that a significant emotional event that occurs. It took that to realize, hey, we don't have the ability to protect our soldiers. EW is necessary. And even though we threw a lot of money at the problem, the way we see is that we lost a lot of soldiers initially when we started bringing these counter ID equipment downrange. We, we slowly, methodically lost less soldiers but it took the you know i got to give credit to colonel buckout she's actually my mentor to this day it took her stick-to-itiveness to identify the problem come up with a plan and 12 years later we have a mos with a doctrine we rewrote doctrine there's a lot of electronic warfare professionals that work inside the pentagon now because it is a big problem and mind you electronic warfare was a problem before the new cyber thing that we'll talk about down the road was a problem because cyber didn't exist now to be correct NetOps and other sister services, we've been doing cyber in some capacity for the last 30 years. But it wasn't until the cyber branch came in that people started realizing, wow, there's an electronic warfare branch. And it's difficult. Yeah, Ken, you're absolutely right. It wasn't easy. We did the best thing we could to figure out how to train, man, and equip these individual soldiers. But unfortunately, we still haven't really equipped them properly. Counter IDs was a thing. And I'll stop there, but that's kind of where we're at today. Yeah, I wanted to kind of pull the thread on the equipping piece because if you look back through EW history, you know, oftentimes we respond to crises that emerge in current conflict and like there's a gap or there's a threat or there's something that we can't defeat and we make mistakes or we fail at something. And then that's when we realize, oh, wait, we need electronic warfare. And then we basically flood the, 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 the theater, flood the battlefield with it, a solution or something that might work but it doesn't necessarily, it's not actually built to sustain and it's not built to improve capability beyond that one particular fight. And so oftentimes we, we, we you know, there's quick reaction capability that's kind of like, you know, funding based on immediate need. It can solve a short-term problem, but, you know, when you're trying to piece together a true robust electronic warfare capability and equip your force accordingly, you can't, you have to get out of that model of thinking. So how did the army kind of switch gears because obviously IEDs could still be a threat, but that's not the motivating force. And you look at the battlefield, it looks more complex and different than what started this army push for EW. So how does the army switch gears and say, okay, we're no longer responding to this threat and this reality, but we still understand now EW is critical. So here's how we're, we got to approach the capability. So, Ken, that's a great question, and, and you're right. Uh, the way we handled the problem initially was through quick reaction capabilities, QRCs, and operational need statements, et cetera, right? And they were designed to fix a problem immediately, but there was no program in place to identify how do we sustain any of that stuff. So just a quick update. All the counter IED devices that were sent to Afghan, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan were all brought together in a certain location, they brought it all back, and there was no plan to use the stuff that we spent thousands, if not millions of dollars on. So again, no sustainment, no program, no no plan of what to do with this equipment we bought. And if civilians figured out today that we spent all these millions of dollars and then stuff is sitting in a, in a Connex van somewhere and not being used, then there would be a lot of folks that are upset. So 
there is plans to cannibalize that stuff and reuse it. And at the end of the day, it's all a software-defined radio. And as technology changes, all that stuff would become obsolete anyway. But the first problem we had is we made all this equipment, we pushed it downrange, and we started using it with no sustainment. And so poignantly, the only programs of record that exist in the Army today are a thing called Electronic Warfare Planning and Man- Management Tool that's been Work, they've been working on that process, that thing for about eight years now. Uh, and that's simply a analysis tool that allows electronic warfare professionals to see the invisible EMS that you're referring to a minute ago, right? But there's no real capabilities attached to it. So it's just like a computer that you have to pull in RF data that comes from the, from the environment. But until you're using the equipment, it, it's not really, it, it doesn't work per se. You have to touch stuff. Um, so for the last 12 years, we've utilized... QRCs, as you said earlier, quick reaction capabilities, and a lot of operational need statements to say, hey, here's my problem. So all the systems that exist today that we've actually loaned to Ukraine in the war with Russia is not a program of record. It wasn't developed programmatically, and so it's just there somewhere, and then we use it, and then we lose it. The second system program of record is coming out as a terrestrial air system or TLIS. So finally... This is the first time that soldiers are actually going to get equipment to do electronic warfare. Uh, we've trained them for the last several years on how to use the equipment, but we never provided equipment to them until now. So finally, the first systems, a couple of prototypes were being developed. Uh, by the next fiscal year, these systems are going to be delivered to the soldiers with sustainment, with programmatics, with the whole .mlpf perspective. There's training, there's leadership, there's everything. And then they're actually going to be putting that in the hands of soldiers because, as you know, there's something to learn theory, but until you start applying theory through practice, you forget a lot of the stuff that, that you were taught. So this is the first time we actually have programs of record to put in electronic warfare soldiers' hands to do their job. So the other problem is, is the equipment updated? Is it is it current? Or is it just old stuff we started making several years ago? Well, I was, I was going to ask you about that because you know, you're talking about EWPMT and good capability in theory, but it has been eight years. It's like, you know, how, how do you... If you're trying to build an iPhone to make it relevant in one year, one particular year, like by the time it comes out, it's almost like you're chasing obsolescence a little bit because you know it, by the time you get it ready to go, it's already behind, and you can't put something out in the field that's obsolete. So it almost it, it's it's a difficult task, I think, when you try to put something like this together to stay ahead of the curve and stay ahead of the threat enough that that it's actually a usable and eff- effective system in the field. So. What's going on with that program success uh, or challenges that you can share about how that is going to affect positively the, the Army's ability to conduct DW? So to your point, it all goes back to Moore's Law. Everybody knows what Moore's Law is, but no one really can explain it. And that's just the idea that technology changes so much, so fast that we're always chasing technology. So I think mathematically it's something like a transistor size gets smaller seven times every year, whatever. And I think I would argue that Moore's Law is probably coming to an end, but quantum is a different issue altogether. But the fact that it takes so long to get stuff out sort of forces us to understand that we need to stay ahead of technology. Uh, So there's a couple of pathways that we've kind of gotten after. So from TLIS finally coming out, I can tell you that the hardware and the software inside of TLIS will be timely and it'll be adaptable. So, you know, it's not doom and gloom that they're finally getting something after eight to 10 years. The stuff that comes out, uh, there's a new concept that PEOEW in Aberdeen is focused on. It's called CMOS. And so CMOS is simply a chassis that allows you to buy hardware 
And then the internal stuff can be updated consistently at a lower price point because you're just putting cards into that. So the standard that the Army identified several years ago was a CMOS standard that says, hey, your equipment industry has to fit in this chassis and it has to be able to give us the opportunity to update it as soon as we can when technology is you know, uh, developed that improves it. So software-defined radios are relatively not a new thing, but the way they work, there's always going to be new cards that you could put in or whatever. So the Army came up with the CMOS standard through SOSA and it's just a industry standard says, hey, if you guys are developing stuff, it has to fit into this chassis. And it, it's sort of uh, the chassis I refer to is what's inside the T-list, what's inside tactical radios. It all has to make everything work together and be adaptable and, and updated and upgraded quickly. So that's a standard that the Army went to that I believe in the, at this point is going to be a way to stay ahead of technology's changes. It's going gonna, it's gonna to make that faster process whenever you have to reprogram anything. So that's a good thing the military's done, the Army specifically. I know the Marines are, have requirements to develop CMOS technologies too. So that was good. We realized, hey, we can't buy a radio 10 years ago and then still use it today. And so that's very promising. And I think in the uh, National Defense Authorization Act and uh, the letter that AOC sent to Congress, that was one of the priorities, right? We're spending $45 million or something like that on CMOS capabilities. And I just want to take a minute to explain what that is. So that's good. So your initial question when we finally do get T-list BCT and EWPMT, it's going to have to be adaptable. And if it's not now, then we're going to actually suffer to the same stuff that happened before. So I'm happy to say CMOS is a way, but some industry leaders will say there's no way we can make one thing adaptable and everything can fit into this box. But unfortunately, that's how it's going to have to be because limited funding every year, right? EW always loses funds when we come to warfighting because... No one can see the benefits of electronic warfare systems and tools, but I could see a bomb blow up and I could, you know, so much money has gone to Ukraine. Again, I refer back to Ukraine to give them uh, lethal weapons as opposed to non-lethal capabilities. And so that's kind of where we're at today. Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. A BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating disruptive next generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas. But in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Labs specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing to high-level sense making, up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions for 
from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products that benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems, Electronic Systems, product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens had, had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work at classification levels, but in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. So, so I wanted to, to go back to, you know, you're talking about the funding of these programs and where these programs are at. You know, AOC, we sent a letter to, to Congress uh, prior to the National Defense Authorization Act coming to the floor, highlighting the, the, the list of EW-relevant programs on the unfunded priorities list from each of the services. And, you know, some of the, the programs that did catch our attention were, you know, CMOS and Terrestrial Layer System, Echelon Above Brigade, you know, it was unfunded at $35 million. Uh, you had CMOS unfunded at $45 million. You had Distributed Common Ground System unfunded at $28 million. You hear the Army talk about the importance of a lot of these programs, and then you see them appear on an unfunded list. And, of course, uh, what we hope now is with the increase in defense and in, in increase in funding that just took place with the, the, the NDAA last week, uh, that some of these programs will be funded. But... What message is that sending when, on one hand, you say we have the Army saying these programs are important, but then they appear on the unfunded list? And, and what, what can we take away from that? So my time that I spent at the Pentagon kindly opened my eyes to that. Um, it's If your requirements exist, you have to bring them to the attention of senior leadership to say, hey, we need this stuff. But at the end of the day, when it comes to you can't write a check for everything, certain things are sacrificed, like uh, MFU Air Large went away for a while, it got unfunded, but MFR Large is another capability that gave soldiers the ability to have their own internal ES support overhead so that they could do operations. So that, when something is not lethal, it, it sort of gets unfunded because it is a requirement, but if we can't afford to pay for it, we're not going to get it. And that's, that's what happens with a lot of this unfunded stuff is, yes, there's a, a big need, it's important, but at the end of the day, we need tanks, we need aircraft, we need lethal munitions, and that's all we can afford to do. So someone in the in the G7 has to make those hard decisions. What can we afford? What can we do differently as a community then? Because we're always going to be kind of competing for limited resources. And when I opened the, the interview, you know, we talk about like, you know, MSO is, is backbone for everything we do. And yet we're still kind of falling second fiddle or, you know, down the list in terms of priority for funding major programs. So what can we as a community be doing differently for senior leadership, not just in the Army, but it, this happens in all the services and, 
when it comes time to say, okay, we have $1, we need to make sure that we give it to EW first because if we don't give it to the backbone of permission success, then we're not going, we, what we'd want to do over here isn't going to work. So that's, you know, how, how do we as a community push that? So it's going to take a cultural shift, right? Because we're used to blowing things up, shooting lethal things downrange, right? It's funny from the, it's not funny, but ironically, it's okay for an 06 colonel to authorize a dropping of a Moab than it is for him to authorize any cyber stuff, right? And I say that because we have to change culturally to understand what non-lethal EMS superiority means. And so Ukraine, again, I'll go back to that. It's good. It's good realization that the Russia-Ukraine war happened because now we can see outside of a counter-ID fight what is necessary to beat a competitor that's 10 times as large as you are. I would argue that EW is one way that's empowered Ukraine to fight Russia. And the misunderstanding of EW is what's caused Russia to suffer a lot, right? Um, like them, they didn't have trained, manned, and equipped folks, and they had equipment in this case, but didn't have training. So it's going to take, an, again, a significant emotional event for our senior leaders to understand that, hey, this is important. Until we have that change in mindset about the EMS being important, we'll continue to lose capability and capacity because we can't take that dollar you mentioned and, and cut it in half or make $10 out of the $1 bill. But what happens with these current events is we realize both in Taiwan and what China wants to do in that stuff, it's important to dominate in the EMS because you've heard of multi-domain operations. We understand that the next war is going to be joint. We're probably never going to fight force on force like the old days. We're going to have to invest in technologies because this next war is going to be a very technological war. And it's going to take senior leaders to understand what that means. And for us, including the AOC, it's imperative that we show, hey, the next congested war, it's important that we understand how to maneuver in that battle space. Uh, and the electromagnetic spectrum is the battle space that everybody uses. So until that is done, until that's recognized by our senior leadership, we're going to continue to lose the fight for I need a dollar and I need bullets and I need tanks and I need helicopters. But I think that it's changing with the adoption and and acceptance of the cyber battle space, we understand how the ones and zeros and the electrons really can change the battlefield. And I think that the, the creation of the cyber MOS and the cyber branch is teaching senior leaders that it's not about artillery and infantry and all that stuff. It's what can we use as smart weapons exist to kind of get after the, the problem set. But it's really going to take a cultural change with senior leaders. We, we talk a lot about you know joint operations, and I've been in some meetings where we, with regarding the budget, the defense budget, and some of the steps that some of the services are taking, you know, we one of the issues was, of course, the the Navy budget plan to divest of the Expeditionary Squadron Growlers, and you know, you also have the divestment plans for A10s um, or the Compass Call, and all those assets, which are, you know, the A10 is not an EW system, but it's a. It, but what's interesting is it conducts really a largely Army mission, and yet it's the Air Force saying, "Here's what we." want to do with that aircraft. And so you, you look at it, the, there's this joint mission, there's this joint operation, and this decision made by a service that kind of goes in against this that concept of jointness. And, you know, some of those funding decisions, it's frustrating when you're trying to push the joint concept of warfighting and MSO and multi-domain operations and, and all that. And then you have services empowered to man, train, and equip, and they're making service-specific recommendations what else can we do to kind of make sure that senior leadership is 
there in OSD across DOD to say, hey, wait a second, you know, you're making this decision in the service, but there's a joint implication to this decision that we have to pay attention to. So it doesn't get to the point where you're leaving it up to Congress to say, wait a second, why are you doing this? Or, or put money back into it because then it becomes just this kind of uh, ongoing process where, well, we can cut this program because we know Congress is going to put money into it. And, and, and that's, we've experienced that in the past. So we want to get away from that. So how do we get in front and say, get our senior leadership to say, step in and say, these service decisions can or cannot happen or must change because of the joint implications. So I think that starts with understanding how we fight. There's different operations or, or layers of, of warfare, right? We talked about this before, but there's a strategic layer, operational layer, and the tactical layer of warfare. And the Army lives a lot in the tactical uh, battle space because what they do is direct force on force in the physical country and the location of where the fight is. Navy and Air Force, they're more standoff distance. They're more strategic. And so a lot of the capabilities that exist are to do a strategic mission. And that's why they don't think about the A-10s going away and the EC-130s because those are capabilities designed that may do tactical operations, but they're doing it for a strategic purpose. Uh, the Army has never thought that way because the Army and the Marines too, bless them, they're at the location where the, where the threat is. And so they're forced to actually worry about what's going on in that physical area. Cyber is something that we've actually started realizing has strategic consequences and effects uh, all the way down to, to tactical effects. And the Army is one of the only, well, is the only force currently that's realized that cyber could also have a tactical application. So they've actually created several expeditionary SEMA teams that are going to provide commanders that close access that, that is needed because it's location, not virtual location, but physical location. And so as we start understanding that all the forces have to work together in the multi-domain world and the joint world, there's stuff that we're going to lose that the Army depends on because they don't have their own equipment. Take, for example, the Growler that you mentioned. It is a Navy asset. It is a strategic asset, but has tactical applications. But it's not until the Army says, hey, I need some of that because I don't have my own capability that we can't get rid of those pieces of equipment that exist. And it's because simply the services don't necessarily understand what they can do for each other. And so when we start working jointly, which we're going to in the EMS especially, there's things that are going to come and go that the Navy didn't realize, hey, these guys really use this thing too, even though it's a Navy program. The Army guys need it because the Army's limited to some of the resources they have. And it all comes back down to limited resources. Congress, unfortunately, it's their call to make the bridge to divide because the Air Force is going to worry about Air Force programs. Navy's going to always focus on Navy programs. The Army's going to look to other folks to help them because there's a lot of stuff that they don't have the ability to do, but they're the ones on the ground that need to do operations. So, Again, similar to the cultural shift, we maybe have to develop a uh, a panel that says, hey, let's identify these joint needs before we get rid of them because these guys don't have the ability. And I think that may fix itself because there's not going to be any more specific branch fights a fight anymore. It's always going to be joint now. Uh, and we're also going to have partners. So the other thing we have to recognize is what do our partners have that can help us in the event that we don't have the resources? And And I mean that from an example with some cyber stuff. Australia and the UK, they have some capabilities that we don't have the authority or the ability to use. So we're not only going to have to understand how to fight jointly and what our sister services have, but also what our nation state partners have too. Because if you think from that perspective, 
we'll be able to, to, to fight jointly. And we're not just going to fight jointly. We're going to fight with our partners as well. So understanding what everybody brings to the table will change the way we get rid of stuff without knowing or being aware of, hey, I needed that. And it's going away like the, uh, the growlers and the prowlers. I wanted to kind of go back to the the topic, and you mentioned it throughout several of your answers. You know what's going on with Russia and Ukraine, and, and you know from a tactical standpoint, I think there's a lot that we can learn, or we are learning from an army perspective of what the future fight might entail from a ground perspective. So, can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing going on over there? What are some of the lessons the army is learning or need to learn with the, the developments taking place over there? So the biggest lesson that the military needs to learn is how things work before we actually go down range and have to use them. There are a lot of limitations with turning on systems in the United States and CONUS. So whether you have a, a capability, you may not be able to use that until you go overseas because you don't have the authority to use that here. We're working currently on an electronic warfare study that says, what do we need to make ranges look like? So if you imagine if we make a multi-domain range to test lethal effects, we also have to test cyber EW and, and spectrum effects, right? And so our limitation in CONUS is a lot of the equipment we're developing that's being used in Ukraine, uh, we can't test, we can't turn on. So the problem you have is you can have trained soldiers, you could have equipment, but until you know how it really works, all bets are off on on understanding the applications. And so what we found in Ukraine is when I was in the schoolhouse, we learned that Russia and, and China have very robust electronic warfare equipment, super robust. And China's got brigades of electronic warfare personnel. Um, China doesn't have the limitations on testing their stuff out, and Russia doesn't have limitations on testing their stuff out. So in theory, you would think that they're manned and they're trained and they're equipped. Problem is, with Russia and the Ukraine, two things. The soldiers were poorly trained on the equipment to do electronic warfare and spectrum management operations in the fight, number one. And number two, if you're fighting on top of each other, jamming affects everyone, not only your own your enemy, but yourself. And so what happened initially is when they started using jammers, Russia realized that they couldn't communicate themselves. So they had to they were forced to shut that stuff off so that they can talk. They even relegated, you know, because of the communications problems, they started using cell phones to communicate and stuff like that. So because they didn't have trained people with the knowledge of how to use these systems, they became a product of their own environment. So that, you know, they basically jammed themselves and they couldn't communicate. And so that's why you see why primarily Ukraine has been able to fight against Russia by themselves because of this misuse of technology. And then it goes back to the leadership, right? So many Russian soldiers and senior leaders have been killed in the war, uh, but nobody had really trained with some of this equipment. Um, so although China and Russia both had a lot of capability and capacity to do electronic warfare, they hadn't really trained. I speak only for Russia in this instance because they hadn't used the systems in so many years that they didn't know the effects that would happen on the battlefield, which is a key learning lesson for us because now I think we must start using equipment. Not only do we need to make equipment for Army to do EW, but they have to really use it in a live environment because you can train in simulations and you can use stuff how it's going to work in theory. But until you turn the systems on, you really don't know how they're going to work. And so that was a big thing. And then there's some news stories recently said that the U.S. government was sending equipment to Ukraine for them to do EW. Well, I would ask you, Ken, what equipment? Because our soldiers don't have equipment yet 
So I'd be interested in knowing what stuff was sent, right? And now that's classified of what they sent. Uh, I think that if the UK provides them stuff, UK's got capability, Australia's got capability. But I would have liked to know what specifically electronic warfare equipment they send Ukraine, because my guys would need that here in the US too, so that they have equipment to do stuff. So of course, it's journalists, it's news stories, so we don't know specifically what was sent. But you have to operate this equipment to see how it really works before you get in theater, because when you use it there for the first time, you never know what kind of congested environment you're operating in. And you're probably going to do what everybody does, Ken, and that's turn your system off because you don't know what it's doing to the rest of the stuff. And that's not good for electronic warfare protection or security for forces in general. And, and we learned those lessons over in Iraq when we first introduced the the uh, IED jammers. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about the, the the training piece because you know we we talked earlier in the episode about how you know a lot of the technology, a lot of the capability is still on its way, but the army has taken a lot of great steps to set up kind of to organize this class of electronic warfare expertise in the army. Could you talk a little bit about how the army is accomplishing training? in realistic threat environments when the capability is that they need to use in the next battle is still on the horizon. So you have the ability through technology to do virtual training in some instances and modeling and simulation. So that's kind of how we can see how things are supposed to work in theory. And that exists and we have pipelines there. Uh, in addition, we're working on efforts to give all the CTCs, the training centers, the ability to train in the EMS battle space, uh, in the cyber battle space. So you can train people by using things through virtual uh, solutions and uh, simulations. You still can't do physical. So that's a way to understand how things work. And you can actually turn on a system and do what's called a closed-loop test to see what it does. So you can see, as the operator, you can see what it's supposed to do without really turning it on. So it's not all doom and gloom without actually having the stuff turned on, really, in real life but it limits the understanding capacity. So we do have ways to train. As I said before, EWMOS has existed since 2010, and we've pushed out probably 1,500 to 2,000 soldiers that are electronic warfare professionals, and they they do this every day. They fall in on equipment, they figure out how it works. So uh, additionally, the, the, the U.S. Army and the U.S. military empowers every one of their soldiers to make decisions from a brand new E1 all the way up to a senior leader. And so Russia... They don't empower their soldiers to make decisions. We do. And so that's a big thing is that when we train folks with the Western mindset, we teach them that, hey, you have to be prepared to make decisions or you have to figure it out. And they're not limited by their own abilities or knowledge or, or attributes. They figure it out as they go. And that's the best thing I could say about electronic warfare professionals is we've developed them with the MOS. Some say that the MOS training initially wasn't robust enough to make them learn things, but most of the soldiers, if not all the soldiers, have the wherewithal to learn more themselves in their actual job with limited equipment. So, you know, there's ways to to learn how to do things when you're not limited by what you're given. And I think I want to say from the soldiers that I've had and managed to the last 15 years, they've been high quality soldiers coming in with degrees and all that stuff already. So we have, we're fortunate enough to have folks like that in our services that figure it out. Um, and I know that's not a really great answer that figured out <laughs> when you get there, but that's how we've we've actually operated for for many many years. And the and the the army teaches you that, right? They teach you a fundamental skill, and then they push you out to your units, and then the rest of the soldiers and the senior leaders will train you what they think that you need to know. So we don't forget about our folks once they graduate from from their MOS producing schools. 
Well, thank you uh, for taking time to join me. That's all the time we have for today's episode. But it was, a, it was a good conversation, and I'd like to have you back on a regular basis. Just kind of talk. There's so much we could more we could talk about, but I do want to I do want to thank you for taking time today to to join me. It's been my pleasure, and looking forward to the next AOC conference, the annual that's coming up in October, I believe. October twenty fifth to twenty seventh. So I urge everybody listening to this podcast today to make sure you're there. Um, I'll be happy to do this again with you. It's my pleasure, Ken, to, to, to help you guys out. And I appreciate what you guys are doing. Thank you so much. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I'd like to thank my guest, Eric Cologne, for joining me this afternoon to discuss this important topic. As always, uh, we ask that you take a few minutes to rate and subscribe us wherever you download your podcast, or you can learn more and and leave a comment or email at crows.org slash podcast. We enjoy hearing from our listeners and look forward to hearing ways that we can continue to improve the show. Thank you for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.